scripture-based classes. Now they'll switch over and serve in a variety of ministries and vice versa. And there are some gaps that you all need to fill by next week. Let me show them to you. These 9 a.m. needs are two-year-olds. The young twos do not have any teachers. We co-teach these classes. They don't have any teachers. The kindergarten do not have any teachers. And the second grade do not. If those are not filled, those classes will not be offered. They'll be canceled. And so they'll be running amok in here. Um, So we need about six people from this service to step up and uh, really serve and mentor these kids for the next. It's a six-month commitment. And if you have not yet uh, stepped into a service lot and you're a member of our church, this is for you. And so I, I hope that you'll be able to help us serve Bless our kids um, next week. So, as uh, in light of your base classes, now they'll switch over and serve in a variety of ministries and vice versa. And bring your word to us in ways that help us love you more and follow you more faithfully. Your base classes, now they'll switch over and serve in a variety of ministries and vice versa. And to our kids, we're blessed. We have lots of kids. We love them. Um, But they are our responsibility to love and to mentor and disciple as a church community as well as as parents. And so, Father, raise up, meet these needs so that the classes can be held for them and even next week and the weeks to follow. So, Lord, we lift these things up and look forward to your kind answers. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, over the years, some friends of mine have moved to a, uh, a new city from what I hear is a pretty remarkable place. Um, I don't, are you familiar with Money Magazine? They do this every year. They do the best places to live, right? And they rank. Uh, interesting, uh, last year when they did it in 2015, the number one place in the country is right here in the Triangle, Apex. Uh, best place, best place to live. And so, since my friend's city is so incredible, and the Raleigh area is the number one area to live in the country by some counts, I thought I'd do a quick comparison for you, just so you could get a sense for uh, the differences. So, in Raleigh, Raleigh's first air quality percent good days. Sixty-five uh, percent of our days are good. Hundred percent where my friends now live. Personal crime incidents, we have 580 per 100,000. They have none, no crime, absolutely no crime. Art and culture index, ours is 55, theirs is 100. Clear days, we have 111. They have 365 clear days a year. Cancer mortality, ours is 213 per 100,000. They have no cancer mortality. And our cardiac mortality is at 182. Theirs is absolutely zero. Where is this place? What is it called? You're wondering. You'd like to go there. I I hope you will someday. It's called the New Jerusalem, the city of God. It's what we think of when we use the term heaven. Uh, that's That's what we're talking about. It's the city of our dreams, only better. Okay. And uh, today, we want to talk about what heaven is like so that When we warn our friends against hell and we invite them to heaven, which is, as we're going to see, which is what we are, what we do, um, it's good to know what we're inviting them to exactly. 
And there's nowhere in the scriptures that paints a more incredible picture than the very last two chapters of your Bible, Revelation 21 and 22. And if you'll turn there, that's where we'll be with the bulk of our time this morning. John uh, is one of Jesus' uh, disciples who's been given a vision of heaven. And he is, you get a sense, it's highly symbolic, um, it's mysterious. You get a sense that he is grasping for words to describe the wonder of what he saw. And as we read the des these descriptions, sometimes people will say, are these to be taken literally? And I would say that or better, okay? Likely better than literally. And we're to think about these things. There was a, a pastor of great legend um, about 300 years ago. His name was Richard Baxter. He says, why are not our hearts continually set on heaven? Why dwell we not there in constant contemplation? He says, bend thy soul to study eternity. Busy thyself about the life to come. Habituate thyself to such contemplations and let not those thoughts be seldom and cursory, but Bathe thyself in heaven's delight. So this morning, especially following last week's sermon on hell, today we want to bathe ourselves in heaven's delights. Um, and this is consistent with what Paul urges us to do. He says in Colossians, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not, not on things that are on earth. So we're urged to think and pray about these things. And Revelation 21 and 22 help us as it describes the heavenly city. Revelation 21, verse 1, John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven, the first earth had passed away, the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Okay. Don't miss this. The key thing about heaven is that God is there. Okay. And because God is there, everything changes. Look, look at the next two verses. God himself will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Okay. The overwhelming emphasis is this. Heaven is an amazing place because God is in the city. Okay. God is there, and he will wipe away the tears of husbands and wives who've been betrayed, of children who've been abused and neglected, of sinners whose secret lives are full of shame, of those who suffered a great, unbearable loss. God, God will wipe away your tears. No more tears. No more sorrows. In the city of Nanjing, there's a, there's a popular bar that has 
one sofa, a few tables, and lots of tissue boxes. It is called a cry bar. And customers can sit there and cry for $6 an hour. The owner, Luo Jun, says he opened the bar when clients of his last business said they often wanted to cry but didn't know when or where it would be appropriate to do so. See, now in heaven, Luan is going to have to find another line of work, okay? The, the cry bars are going out of business because God is there, okay? Um, last week, we saw you know, in, in a very somber way that hell is the place where God is present only in His wrath and judgment. But Wayne Grudem uh, writes in his systematic theology that heaven is the place where God most fully makes His presence known to bless, where you are blessed by God's presence. And in God's presence, there are no cancer wards, there are no children's wings, there are no psych wards, there are no cemeteries, prisons. In this city, everything changes because God is there. Okay? And the description, again, it's highly symbolic and it's incredibly beautiful. Just listen to a little of what he, how he describes this city. Verse 10, John says, this angel carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Drop down to verse 18. There's a wall that surrounds the city. It's built of jasper. The city is pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city are adorned with every kind of jewel. Drop down another verse. We read that the 12 gates were 12 pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass, stunningly beautiful beyond words. Right? Now, when you start doing the most um, beautiful city contests, uh, one of the ones that comes up is, uh, my daughter is in uh, South Africa on a mission trip. She's in the, she's in the largest slum of Pretoria teaching English to middle schoolers there. And if you went a little south of there, you come to the city of Cape Town. And Cape Town is reported to be one of the most beautiful cities on earth. It's, they said the architecture suits the land. There are pastel houses with Dutch-style facades terraced up the side of the mountain. And in the morning, fog rolls in. The sunlight casts a glow over everything. It's beautiful, but it's not that beautiful compared to the heavenly city, the New Jerusalem. See, Cape Town is not just beautiful. It's also the number one murder capital in the world, by some counts, and it's second in kidnapping. Okay. So it, it has beauty, but it pales. It doesn't hold a candle to the New Jerusalem whose beauty comes from the presence of the glory of God. And that's emphasized at every turn, right? Verse 15. This angel speaks to John. He has a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and walls. And the city lies four square, its length, same as its width. He measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width, height are equal. He measured its wall. Okay. Its length and width and height are equal. The, the shape is perfectly symmetrical. It's perfect. And it reminds, it harkens back to the Holy of Holies. 
that sacred place where God manifests His presence in the temple in the Old Testament. That's where God dwelt. Even the shape of the city emphasizes the beauty and the perfection of the presence of God. Verse 22 says, But I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. See, there's no temple because there's direct access to God always. In this city, you will always have direct access to God, always, everyone, everywhere. The city, it has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. God's presence, the idea, it's everywhere. It illumines the city by His glory. The greatness of the city is caused by one thing. Its beauty is caused by one thing. God is there. Everything points to that. And in that city, we will see his face, and his name will be on our foreheads, and night will be no more. They will not need a lamp or light or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. God could not show his face to Moses, because Moses could not bear it. But in that city, we will see it, and we will draw near to him, and we will worship him forever. See, the presence of God in the city means a couple of different things. It means the absence of all negatives. He says that in a couple ways. He says, verse 27, nothing unclean will ever enter the city, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. There'll be no evil in the city. It says in verse 4, you'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no death, mourning, crying, pain. These former things, they've passed away. No more sorrow, no regret, no sadness over a lost or missed opportunity. Parents, no sibling rivalry okay, in the city. None of that kind of stuff. No natural disasters, no tragic suffering, no more cancer. No more cancer. Think, think about that with me. Just reflect as you watch this ad and think about what it means this has been banished from God's, God's presence. Think about that. If your life has been touched by cancer, someone you love has been touched by cancer, uh, no more cancer, okay? Just an endless string of very, very happy birthdays. No cancer wards, no neonatal units, no funerals, no loss, no separation, no sickness, no aging, no death, because God is there, okay? And His presence banishes these things from the city. Okay. God is there and we are there with him. That's the beauty of it. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them 
they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. Revelation paints this picture earlier in the book. In chapter 7, it says, The lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to the springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. See, heaven is the absence of all negatives, including evil, because God is there. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, their portion will be in the lake, not in the city, but in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. As we've seen, nothing unclean will ever enter the city, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. See, this is, this is one of the underlying meanings be, behind that imagery that there is no sea. Remember in the first verse it said, saw a new heaven, a new earth, there was no sea. Um, some of you were distressed by that. You thought that meant there would be no fishing in heaven. It's not what it means. It's symbolic. Um, the sea is often representative of the place of the dead and the source of the beast, a symbol of horrific evil in opposition to God. There will be no evil. I bet there'll be fishing, okay? And it'll, it'll be good, okay? It'll be really good. But this is, because this is of stunning significance. Look, um, think back with me, all the way back, early pages of your Bible, the other end of the Bible, uh, Genesis 3 Everything goes wrong when Adam and Eve disobey God's command, right? And God says to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Now, listen to this contrast from our passage. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything cursed. The curse from sin is removed. The world is not bent and burdened anymore as the result of sin. Again, no hospitals, no funeral homes, no jails, no sin, no evil, no fear, nor abuse, rape, murder, drugs, drunkenness, bombs, guns. Okay, there might be some guns, but they won't, you won't shoot anybody. Okay? No terrorism, no lying, no deception, none of that. Nothing evil. The presence of God means the absence of all negatives. And you can flip it, and you could say it another way. You could say the presence of God means the presence of all positives. The positive side of the absence of all suffering is that we are fully and wholly comforted by God himself. It's God himself, it says, who wipes away our tears. He brings us comfort personally. God will personally comfort you. There'll be unimaginable beauty. We've been reading about it. Beautiful jewels, giant pearls, pure, transparent gold. And that is just the building materials, okay? That's the stuff you're going to go down to Home Depot and buy to build stuff, okay? It's going to be incredible, incredibly beautiful. And you wonder, literal? Again, 
literal or better, probably better. Randy Alcorn says it's the home, heaven is the home of relentless joy. C.S. Lewis says joy is the serious business of heaven. It is going to be a party, okay? The most beautiful place you've ever imagined, only better. And there are recurring themes as you read Revelation 21 and 22. Let me encourage you, this afternoon go home, read Revelation 21 and 22. Okay? Just take some time. So you probably read it in 15 minutes if you don't take time to ponder it. But I'll warn you, it's pretty ponderful. Okay? I'm not sure if that's a word, but it should be a word when you talk about heaven. It's ponderful. Um, but you can just, just read these chapters and think about what, wait, what life waits for us with God. Says repeatedly that things are new. There's a new heaven and a new earth. There's a new Jerusalem. It says God is making all things new. The old order, the old sin bent order of things is passing away. Talks about life being present lavishly. It says there's, there's the water of life, there's the Lamb's book of life, there's a tree of life. Life is here. There's no more death in the city. And there's a bride there. In uh, verse 2, it says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The city is is like a bride. And then down in verse 9, it says, one of those angels comes and says to John, saying, come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. The lamb is Christ, and the church is his bride. So he's talking about the, the church being there as the bride of Christ. And, and guys, I know it's hard to think of yourself as a bride, but it is, it's payback for all the times the ladies have to think of themselves as sons, okay? <laughs> so we are the bride, um, beautifully adorned. Um, But guys, if this is too much for you to grasp, this bride talk, the good news is that the church in this imagery, and this is how imagery works in this kind of literature, it just shifts around a bit. We are both bride and city. So if you can relate to being the city better, we are the city, that beautiful city where God is going to dwell. Um, It says, That angel came and said, come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So to show him the bride, the church, he showed them the city. We are both the beautiful bride and the beautiful city in this imagery. Now, obviously, there's a bit of an extreme makeover that's going to happen between us now and us then. But the images there are of the beautiful bride God loves and the beautiful city where God dwells. Both of those are images of the intimacy and communion of our relationship with God in the city. See, it's really not about the place. It's about the company. Because God is there, all these things are true. 
And so John Piper asks a really good question. He says, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness, all the friends you ever had on earth, all the food you ever liked, all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ was not there? And of course, the answer, as we've seen, is no, because heaven is only heaven because Christ is there. Right? He is our loving husband. He dwells among us as the city where he makes his home. If the greatest thing about heaven is the person, not the place, what are you doing now to get to know that person who's that beautiful and that loving and that caring and that powerful? Where does that rank on your priorities? Does it show up on your calendar as a priority to pursue God, to know God, this God. So when we think about heaven, it's amazing because that's where God is. And it banishes all negatives and it brings all positives to those who are there in His presence. Um, there are some misconceptions that are pushed on us in our day, whether that's through movies or just common cultural references. One of them is that heaven is a disembodied existence where we float on clouds and play harps, right? Love harps. Every once in a while we get to have a harp on the worship team. It's the coolest thing ever. But the idea of sitting on a cloud without, evidently you have no body because you can sit on a cloud forever playing a harp, um, that's a little stretches me just a little bit. Um, but that's not our hope, okay? That's not our heaven. Our hope is in a very bodily resurrection, just like Jesus. Jesus is the pattern. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that in, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we're of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep there are others who will follow in a bodily resurrection just like Christ. And because we are resurrected with bodies okay, at the return of Christ, then our destination is not a cloud but a new earth. Peter puts it this way. He says, according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which Righteousness dwells. Our ultimate destination is a new heaven and a new earth. And we saw at the beginning of chapter 21 that that city is coming down out of heaven to that new earth, and God is going to dwell on that new earth with his people. In, we're going to have bodies there. We're going to do stuff on a planet, on an earth. Okay. Now, the difficulty for a lot of us uh, in a lot of our thinking, is that um, what we are talking about, when we talk about the new heaven and the new earth, is what somebody has, some have coined the phrase, life after life after death. Um, think of it this way. If this is, this is a timeline, and this is when we die, and this is when Christ comes back, and our bodies are raised from the dead at that point in time, 
there's, there's a gap, right? For everyone who's already died and who dies before Christ's return, there's this in-between time. And we don't have a lot of information about that in-between time. Um, we don't know what kind of body we'll have. Are we disembodied spirits or do we have like an interim body, like a rental that we use for a while? We don't really know. Scripture doesn't tell us a lot about that time, but it does tell us it, it's kind of encapsulated in the language of heaven because that's where God is now. We will be with Christ. That's the most significant thing about this interim time period. We'll be with Christ. Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. So, during this interim time, we know that when we are in heaven, we are with Christ. And that, as we've seen, is what matters above all things. There will likely be amazing worship because God is there. The scenery of Revelation 4 and 5 around the throne is likely describing that. Some people think the new Jerusalem is already there, already waiting to come down to heaven with God once, once the time is right. But what changes ultimately is the resurrection of our bodies at the return of Christ, the making of the earth new, and the descending of the God with the new Jerusalem to live and dwell on that earth See, the whole cloud and harp thing may have its roots in failing to recognize that this present heaven is not our ultimate destiny, but ultimately we'll live on a new earth or a renewed earth and heaven. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology says, Christians often talk about living with God in heaven forever, but in fact, the biblical teaching is even richer than that. It tells us there'll be a new heaven and a new earth, an entirely renewed creation, and we will live with God there. So heaven is not a disembodied existence floating around on clouds. One of the other misconceptions that come out of that is that heaven is boring, right? Um, famously, Ted Turner, a number of years ago, was speaking at the National Press Club, and he said, remember, heaven is going to be perfect. He's speaking to a bunch of reporters. He says, I really don't want to be there. Those of us that go to hell, uh, which will be most of us in this room because most journalists are certainly going to hell, he says, when we get there, he says, we'll have a chance to make things better because hell is supposed to be a mess and heaven is perfect. He says, who wants to go to a place that's perfect? Boring, boring, he says. And that's caught up in this far side cartoon that says, gosh, wish I would brought a magazine. You know, That's what kind of what goes through some people's minds about heaven, that it's a place of boredom. See, I love what C.S. Lewis, he responds to this kind of thinking. He says, there's no need to be worried by facetious people who try to make the Christian hope of heaven ridiculous by saying they do not want to spend eternity playing harps. He says, the answer to such people is that if they cannot understand books written for grown-ups, they should not talk about them. He says, all the scriptural imagery, crowns and gold and all that, is, of course, merely symbolic attempt to express the inexpressible. People who take these symbols literally might as well think that when Christ told us to be like doves, he meant that we were to lay eggs, okay? 
So this is symbolic of, of the stuff that's beyond our, our ability to comprehend. There's a, if you want to do some thinking and reading about heaven, a great website online. It's called epm.org, eternalperspectiveministries.org. It's by Randy Alcorn. He's written a, a fabulous book on heaven. You can go there and just poke around and find really good, solid biblical reflections on heaven. But he describes, contrary to the cloud-floating, harp-playing view of what we'll do in eternity, listen to how he describes, based on scripture, what we'll do. He says, the city, this new city will have all the freshness, vitality, and openness of the country with all the vibrancy, interdependence, and relationships of a city. He says, we'll meet there and converse with other inhabitants of heaven, people like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Ruth, Esther, Mary, Peter. He says, I want to talk to C.S. Lewis, A.W. Tozer, Jonathan Edwards, Amy Carmichael. He says, we'll also get to converse with angels who've been our protectors in this life, and we'll find out which ones were our protectors, and we'll be able to talk to them about what that was like. He says, we'll enjoy and share with others the treasures we laid up for ourselves in heaven while we lived on earth. We'll compose, we'll write, paint, carve, build, plant, and grow. He says, there's going to be a choir there of angels that's going to number Revelation says 10,000 times 10,000. That's a hundred million angel choir that's going to be going on. We'll learn in heaven. We will, for all eternity, keep learning about God and His creation and each other. We'll serve God. We'll have responsibilities and duties and effort and planning and creativity to do work well. We'll lead and exercise authority in heaven because we reign with Christ. Okay? He says again, Heaven will be the home of relentless joy. Um, life in the new heaven and on the new earth is the life we've always longed for, only better because God is there. And remember, it's really about the company, not the location. Um, Last misconception that we'll, we'll look at. It's, it's not a disembodied existence. It's definitely not boring. And the tendency is to think that heaven is for those who are good enough. Now, there was a survey. It's been 20 years or so since this survey was done, uh, but it was written in U.S. News and World Report, and it's fascinating. It's the percentage of people who are either very likely or somewhat likely to go to heaven, Okay. And at the top of the list, Mother Teresa, 79%, Oprah, 66%, Michael Jordan, 65%, Hillary, 55%, Bill, a little less than Hillary, 52%, and OJ, not much chance of OJ getting there. But what's really interesting about the study is that there was one person that they felt like had an even better chance of getting into heaven than Mother Teresa, right? Me. These people, 87% of the people felt like they had a really good chance of getting into heaven. But Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Those who enter it by it are many, for the gate is narrow, the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. It seems like we've got our gates confused, right? Sin has taken us all captive 
to a path that we don't want to walk, to take us to a place where we don't want to go. And as we saw last week, that place is called hell. But the hope of heaven, of life in God's presence and all that that means comes to us, not because we're good enough, but because someone has been good enough in our place. Christ has been good enough in our place. It's interesting. Uh, almost presidential candidate Michael Bloomberg, um, former mayor of New York and multi-billionaire probably, he, he went a while back to his 50th college reunion, and at age 72, he was sobered by how many of his former classmates had passed away. Um, but the author of the interview concluded with him, says, if Bloomberg senses that he may not have as much time left as he was like, he has little doubt about what would await him at Judgment Day. Pointing to his work as mayor on gun safety, obesity, and smoking cessation, he says with a grin, I am telling you that if there is a God when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I'm heading straight in. I have earned my place in heaven. It's not even close, he says. He says it with a grin. I, I hope he knows that that's absolutely not true. See, the hope of this life with God forever is not rooted in me being good enough, but that I'm trusting in someone else who is the perfect man, Jesus the Christ. And you need to know that even if you're friends with Michael Bloomberg, every one of your friends needs this. No one is good enough not one. Listen to Paul's language. None is righteous. Not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. The only hope of even the best amongst your friends is that they would lean on trust in hope in Christ. Okay. Not in their own words. Mark Twain said it perfectly. He said, heaven goes by favor. If it went by merit, you would stay out and your dog would go in. Okay? It's not by merit. We can't merit it. Okay? That's what those gates are about in the city. Remember, you ever heard anybody talk about the pearly gates? That's the imagery. It says, nothing unclean will ever enter the city, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Christ is the Lamb, and our name is written there by trust in Him. And Jesus, in another place, says, I am the door. I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved. And we'll go in, in and out, and find pasture. And our privilege as the church, as the bride, is to invite others in. Okay. It's fascinating. Look at Revelation 22, verse 17. Listen to what it says. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. The Spirit and the Bride, that's the church, that's us. Our job is to say to people, come, come. Everyone who hears and believes, it's our responsibility and privilege to say, come. 
to invite people to a relationship with God through Christ that experiences this kind of life for all eternity. Now, next Sunday, George Robinson, one of our elders and on one of our church's best evangelists, is going to help us think about the shape that invitation should take as we offer it to people. Okay. But I want you to know that you don't have to wait until next week to respond to the invitation. Okay. You are invited today to the city of God by the work of Christ on the cross and in his resurrection on your behalf. If you will trust him, this becomes your future and your sure hope. I'm going to ask the worship team to come and lead us in a song of, of praise and worship as we close our hope in heaven. Um, but as we do, you may want to drop out of the singing just to talk with God about whatever he's saying to you. You can do that down here. You can do it in your seat, whatever is best for you. But it may be that there's someone on your mind this morning that you long to hear and believe the hope of the good news of Jesus so that they will experience this eternity and not what we spoke of last week. And as we sing, feel free to just drop out and if you want to come down and pray, uh, to do that, to pray for those that you care about, that you love, that you hope will one day embrace this hope. Okay? So let's stand. Let's, uh, 